All right, and uh, before we uh, take a look at First Peter, let's say a quick prayer together. Uh, Lord God, thank you so much for this time that we can uh, come together to worship and, and come before your word. Uh, we do pray that you would uh, change our hearts, change our minds and our lives, and help us to live more like Christ uh, as a result of the preaching. So please be with me in a special way, open my lips uh, to declare your praise, and open our ears uh, to hear your word. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. Pressing in to our suffering. We are continuing our look at the book of 1 Peter, and uh, the title of this series is A Letter to the Exiles, uh, which is what Peter calls the Christians, because they are like strangers and they are like foreigners in their society. Uh, The first sermon we looked at was Press into Our Salvation, where Peter reminds uh, the Christians that they're not only exiles, but they are elect exiles, that they are chosen and that they are special. The next sermon we looked at was Press into Our Community. Uh, It's not just that we're a community of exiles and strangers and misfits. No, we're actually a community of royal priests. Uh, He calls us a holy nation. And the next sermon uh, was press into our example, who is Jesus Christ, who teaches us how to live as his royal priests, uh, namely by submitting and lifting others up and esteeming them higher than ourselves. And that brings us to today, to press into our suffering, which might seem a little bit strange for a sermon title. If you compare this to the other three, maybe this is the one that doesn't belong with the others. Think about pressing into our salvation. Yeah, that sounds like a typical message that we would hear at church. Uh, You know, salvation is God redeeming us. We see that throughout all of the Bible. Uh, The next one we also expect to hear on a typical Sunday morning, pressing into our community, coming together as God's people to worship. Maybe we don't like it as much, it's a little bit more difficult to think about, and we have to do something more than our salvation, but it's still part of the Christian message. Pressing into our example, it's not usually how we think of Jesus in an evangelical church. We think of him as our savior, not as our example that we have to copy, but it's still okay, it's pretty clear in the text. But when we come to the idea of pressing into our suffering, this seems quite foreign to us. Uh, So I imagine that there's several objections out there floating around, and maybe some of you have think that I have gone crazy altogether. Now, maybe I have gone crazy, but I am trying to anticipate some of your objections to the idea of pressing in to our suffering. Some of the objections that I have thought about is that maybe we're thinking out there that God wants us to be happy. If God is good and God is loving then surely he wants his people to be happy. Think if you have a good and loving teacher, that teacher is going to have happy students or want their students to be happy. If you have a good and loving parent, they're hopefully going to want their kids to be happy. If you have a good and loving spouse, they're going to want their partner or other spouse to be happy. Same thing with a boss. If a boss is good and loving, he's going to want to have good and happy employees. So if God is good, surely he wants us to be happy. So why would we press in to our suffering? 
And this kind of, oh, yeah, so I forgot that I put this in here. Uh, so this is why we went out and we bought the bumper sticker, right, that says, Smile, God Loves You. Uh, last week I had pictures for the kids' service. Everybody said they enjoyed the pictures, so I tried to include uh, a couple pictures here. So we all have the bumper stickers, right? Or we see the bumper stickers. We just kind of have this as part of our foundational thinking. That God is good, he's loving, therefore he wants us to be happy. And this is partly why we came to church today, right? So that we could find some happiness. Maybe it's why some of us came to Christianity altogether, because we wanted to avoid suffering. And this kind of leads us to our next point. Isn't that what the gospel is all about? Aren't we saved from suffering? Uh, We open the service usually by saying that the gospel changes everything, that it takes us from being dead and gives us new life, that it moves us from a state of sinfulness into a state of purity. One of the, the best examples we or pictures we have of salvation in the Bible is the story of the Exodus. Israel was enslaved to Egypt. They were being oppressed And the gospel came and freed them. They were led out into the promised land where they weren't supposed to be suffering like they were under Egypt. So isn't that what the gospel message is all about? That we're supposed to avoid suffering. That that's what we're saved from. So that would be the second objection. The third one is just kind of common sense, right? Some religions kind of are dedicated to the proposition that all suffering is bad and you need to try to avoid it. This is one of the core tenets of Buddhism, that suffering exists, it's a bad thing, and we need to try to figure out how to overcome it. But it's just part of our natural tendency, right? It's kind of in all of our ways of thinking. Uh, It's why we, you know, click our seatbelts in because we don't want to pay a fine for not clicking it in, or we don't want to have a very bad injury if we should get into a wreck. Uh, we do this with our finances, right? We don't put all of our uh, investments into one, uh, one stock. We diversify, so if one stock gets hit, we're not suffering so bad, so we try to diversify. So shouldn't we just try to avoid suffering altogether? I even think of some scripture passages like the book of Proverbs, where it says that a wise person or a a prudent person can actually foresee suffering and trouble and tries to avoid it. But the fool goes on and walks right into their suffering. So how can we possibly preach about pressing into our suffering if we're supposed to avoid suffering? And now this leads us to our last objection. Maybe for some of those who are uh, socially minded or thinking about others, that part of our job is to stop suffering. This is one of the main narratives in our culture, that suffering exists because people with power and wealth, they use it wrongly and oppress people that are poor. And it's our job to go and set people free from that. Uh, We even see talks of this in scripture. One of the the prophets said that it's our job to to seek justice, uh, to love mercy and walk humbly with our God. We we like those those last two, the idea of mercy and walking with God. But then that idea of seeking justice, eh, we don't like so much. Uh, But we think about seeking justice as a way to stop suffering. Uh, In uh, the book of James, James says that The true religion, uh, not the genes, for those who are in the men's group, every time I said true religion, they asked if I was talking about the genes. No, not the genes, but true religion, according to James, is to help stop suffering, particularly by taking care of widows and orphans. So isn't it our job to stop suffering rather than to press into it? 
Well, I think all of these objections are partially valid, but I think that they are incomplete. So for us to really understand why and how we're supposed to press into our suffering, we have to go and we have to correct these objections. So for that, we need the teacher's red pen. So school is starting up this week. So for the teachers out there, for the students that are going to be seeing a lot of red ink, we're going to get you started early. So we're going to use our red pen, and we're going to go through and correct these objections. So why should we press into our suffering? Well, it's not so much that God wants us to be happy. He wants us to be holy first and then happy. It's not so much that a good teacher wants their students to be happy. A good teacher wants their students to be smart and then happy. And it's not so much that parents or spouses want their family to be happy. No, they want them to be healthy before they are happy. In the same way, maybe a boss wants his employees to be happy, but he also wants his employees to be productive and to be healthy and to be smart. And it's the same thing with God. God is a good God, but he doesn't just want you to only be happy. He's concerned with making you good. He wants you to be holy. If you open your Bibles to 1 Peter 3, and in the Pew Bibles, it's around page 100, or excuse me, 1015. But 1 Peter 3, take a look at verse 13 through 17. Uh, these were some of the verses that were read we see the idea of good and righteous continually appearing. Uh, Verse 13, it says that you should be zealous for what is good. Take a look at verse 16, that you should have a good conscience. Later in the verse, it talks about us having good behavior in Christ. And in verse 17, It says that it is better for you to suffer for doing good than if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So so four times here, Peter uses the word good to emphasize that God wants you to be holy. And if you take a look at verse 14, he talks about you being righteous. He wants you to be righteous. So it's the whole person. He wants your, your thinking, your conscience to be good. He wants your behavior, your actions to be good, and he wants you to just be in a state of righteousness. And we'll talk in a moment about how you obtain that righteousness, how you get it. But well before you get to happiness, God is concerned with your holiness. And we see in here that there is actually blessedness in suffering. In verse 14, it says, If any of you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. That word for blessed is frequently translated as happy. Maybe some of your translations have it as happy, but it's a very common word in the wisdom literature. Uh, We see it in Psalm 1. uh, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Uh, We see it in the teaching of Jesus in the Beatitudes when he says, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, Blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who suffer, and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Uh, So Peter here is echoing the Beatitudes, the very teaching of Paul, or the very teaching of Jesus, rather, that yes, uh, God does want you to be happy, but it's in suffering that we find this true blessedness. Uh, 
one of the questions that was always asked whenever I was growing up in church is, what is God's will for your life? You know, it's usually asked by teenagers as they're trying to think, where do I go to college? What do I study? And maybe some adults have that question, is uh, what does God want for my life? What is God's will? Well, surprisingly, this passage tells us in verse 17 that sometimes God wills us to suffer. Uh, Peter tells the Philippians that it's not just sometimes, but that's part of our identity. It's not just that you were chosen to be elect, you were chosen to be in exile, and that includes suffering. Now, why would God want you to suffer? Why would that be part of a good God's will to allow suffering? Well, it's because he wants you to have a greater level of happiness than we see in the world around us. You see, if God gives you a promotion, uh, it's very easy to be happy. If he gives you a big financial bonus, yeah, anybody can be happy in that situation. Or if you're the star athlete with the captain's band on, yeah, of course you're going to be happy and you're going to feel blessed. But what he wants you to do is he wants you to be happy and blessed whenever you get fired. He wants you to be happy and blessed even whenever you're benched and you're no longer the star athlete, but you're kicked to the side. God is offering you a happiness that is not dependent upon your situation. One of the things we're learning about in our men's group is some of the ways we talk about God. And one of those is that, that God is immovable. Uh, there's no outside agent, agent that can come and act on God and make God do something that he doesn't want to do. Right? So that's how we think of God. He is supreme, he is unchangeable, and there's nothing that can come and do something to him he doesn't want done. So whenever we have holiness, it's actually holiness belongs to God, and he's giving us holiness, and guess what? We become immovable in our holiness and in our happiness. So whenever the bad things come, we're not shaken by them because we have something that is more foundational. So it's not only that God wants us to be happy so we avoid suffering. No, he wants us to have a true happiness that survives suffering. So this is how we correct the first objection, by saying that God wants you to be holy, and then after holiness, then you can find true happiness. All right, so the next objection that we must correct is that we are saved from suffering. Now, this is true, but we are actually saved from suffering through suffering. Uh, one of my favorite passages of scripture is, uh, I like the obscure ones, ones that not everybody uh, knows about, uh, actually comes from Job chapter 36. Uh, Job is one of the more confusing books in the Bible. Like we all kind of understand the first two chapters of Job, maybe the last like two or three chapters. Everything in the middle is really hard to get. Because it's a conversation between you know, four or five different people, so it's hard to really track their thought and what we're supposed to be thinking and doing as a result of it. But essentially what's happening is Job, the main character, is suffering. And all of his friends think Job is suffering because there's sin in his life. So they go back and forth for about 30 chapters. Uh, and then there's this, this uh, fifth character uh, named Elihu, who is younger than Job and his friends. And he's sitting there listening to these old men just completely get it wrong, and eventually he erupts and says, you know, I've been trying to be good. I've been trying to let, you know, wiser people than me talk, but I've had enough. And now I'm going to interrupt and interject and say, actually, you don't really understand what God is doing. He's so far above us. And specifically with suffering in Job 36, 15, 
Elihu says that God delivers the afflicted by their affliction, and that he opens their ears by adversity. So do you catch that again? He says he delivers the afflicted by their afflictions, and he opens their ear by adversity. So it's not just that he saves people from suffering. He saves them through suffering. Affliction is like the Q-tip that comes and cleans out the dirty ear so you can hear God's voice. We see this same concept in, uh, let's see, Psalm 119.71, where the psalmist says, It was good that you afflicted me so that I could learn your holy ways. So God's affliction is good because it's this agent that moves us out of complacency. Think back to the Exodus story. The Israelites were rather complacent in, in uh, Egypt. At times, they didn't, uh, didn't want to leave. They would rather stay there. And whenever they were going into the promised land, they said, you know, I wish we were back in slavery because that was better. So whenever people started to pray for deliverance, whenever they were under Egypt, what did God do? He actually made the situation worse. They had to produce the same amount of bricks, but with less straw. It became more difficult. The people became more and more and more burdened before they got deliverance. But in the midst of their suffering, at the very pinnacle, or the very depth, depending on how you look at it, of their suffering, there was birthed something miraculous. The Passover lamb. This sacrificial lamb that took all of the suffering, that took the death, so the people of Israel could be free. They couldn't get to that point of the Passover lamb if they hadn't endured all of these other hardships. The Passover is commonly called Pascha, or uh, some of the uh, other Christian traditions don't use the term Easter. They use the term Pascha to talk about Easter because it's the sacrifice of the lamb. Does anybody know what the Greek word Pascha means? Take a look at verse 18. It says, Christ also suffered. Suffering is Pascha. It is the same thing. So we see that we find our suffering through the suffering of Christ. Verse 18 is one of the most important verses in the Bible. It says that Christ also suffered once for sin. So we see this foundation for our suffering. But then we see the true nature of his suffering. It says that the righteous, Jesus Christ, suffered for the unrighteous. This is what we call the great exchange, that which was good, substituting for that which was bad, the way that the, the Passover lamb absorbed the death so that the Israelites could have life. Here we see the lamb of God absorbing our unrighteousness so that we could have his righteousness. Now, one of the things that I have personally been contemplating for the last year or so, and probably will continue to, is the humility of Christ. Uh, we think of the incarnation, how Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became a human being. How he left his throne in glory to be born in a manger. What an act of humility. But he didn't stop there. He grew up under parents and underneath authorities and dealt with all the same problems that we do as human beings. You know, he had pimples, he had soreness, he was tired, he was hungry, he had all of these difficulties, and he even died. 
but he died in pain. He didn't die a peaceful death in his bed, you know, that we all hope that we pass away with. No, he died in agony. And he died in shame. He was naked in front of his peers. How humiliating. But we get a glimpse here that his humility and his humiliation, his suffering goes even deeper. There's some odd verses in this passage that we didn't read, but take a look at verse 19, or verse 18 flowing into 19. You start at 18. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, what does that mean about Jesus going and proclaiming the, you know, the, the good news, proclaiming the gospel to the spirits in prison. And we see something very similar taking place in chapter 4, verse 6. Uh, for this is why the gospel was preached to even those who are dead. Uh, now, I, I'm not going to say what's going on in this passage definitively because it's, it's quite obscure. Some people see this as saying, well, Jesus Christ was preaching to the uttermost. He was preaching to the, the worst of sinners, those that are as good as dead. But some are saying that he actually went and he preached into other realms. He went down to the pits of the abyss after his death and continued preaching to the spirits that are in prison. That he conquered the gates of hell in his death and there he proclaimed this news. That's what the majority of the early church taught and believed regarding this type of passage. So the idea of God's humility, we have no idea how far down Christ came. But we know that he came down as low as possible. And he did that so that we could have his life. So that he could exchange and take our unrighteousness and give us his righteousness. Now, of course, this exchange leads us to our safety. But it's not a safety that is completely free from suffering. Now, one of the images that I've been using in this series is to to think of salvation as an ark. And to think of salvation as Noah's Ark, and I have been doing that based on uh, verse uh, 20, where uh, he pulls in Noah and talks about the Ark as this picture of salvation. Uh, He refers to to the Ark, and he connects it to baptism, and then he says that this corresponds, uh, that baptism corresponds to the Ark, which now saves you. So there's this intimate connection between the Ark and salvation, and between our baptism and salvation. Uh, One of the interesting words in verse 21 is uh, corresponds to this. Uh, It's actually a technical word that we use uh, in theology. The the, the word is literally antitype. So when we talk in uh, how to understand the Old Testament in terms of the New Testament, we we think of types and antitypes. So, uh, for instance, uh, Moses, you know, he is a deliverer. Uh, He is a type of Christ, and Christ is the antitype. He's the greater version of, of Moses. Uh, the author of Hebrews talks about the tabernacle where God's presence is and all the different elements like the table of showbread and uh, the holy of holies and says that, that in the Old Testament that was a type and in the New Testament there's an antitype and that, that's heaven. That's where Christ is now. He's in this new holy of holies. In the same way we see that the ark of Noah in the Old Testament that was a type And our salvation in the New Testament is the antitype, the greater reality of what was experienced in Noah. So yes, Noah was delivered from uh, the destruction of of the flood, 
But if you think about spending all of this time on the ark, it wasn't exactly a five-star hotel or a luxurious yacht. Noah had to do work. He had to build this ark. He had to gather all the wood with his sons. He had to construct an ark while everybody else was wicked. So they were probably making fun of him and he probably faced hostility. Whenever he was on the ark, he had all of these animals to take care of. Uh, There's an ark uh, replica, I believe, in Kentucky, something like that. Uh, One of my nieces uh, went on a a trip with, I think, her youth group, and they actually got to sleep uh, in this ark overnight. And my my sister was one of the uh, chaperones on this trip. And uh, my sister told me that it was one of the worst trips of her life because she couldn't get any sleep on the ark with these teenage girls. Or, you know, maybe almost preteen girls, something like that. Now, imagine if you were there with all of these different animals, you know, mooing and crowing and neighing and all the other uh, animal sounds that they make throughout the night and you have to clean up after them and feed them. You would have been suffering, right? But it was through Noah's suffering, he was safe in the ark, which endured the overall suffering of the waves and the flood. So it is not so much that God simply saves you from suffering. No, he saves you from suffering, but through suffering. All right, so we've corrected two of our four objections, and now we are moving along. It's not so much that we should avoid suffering altogether, but we should uh, avoid spiritual suffering. I said that this one was kind of linked to common sense, right? It's in our nature to avoid suffering. If the stove is hot, we remove our hand, right? Or we have the foresight to wear a seatbelt so we don't get a ticket or get in a very bad accident. But we don't try to avoid all types of suffering. Uh, You know, think of Peter, the one who is writing this letter. Uh, He tried to avoid suffering. Whenever Jesus Christ says that the Messiah is going to suffer many things and die, Peter rebukes Jesus and says, no, 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 far be it from you to suffer, Lord. And then Jesus, in turn, rebukes Peter for trying to avoid suffering. In the same way, whenever Peter was trying to avoid suffering after Jesus had been arrested, Peter denied Christ. So Peter was trying to avoid the wrong type of suffering. He was worried about physical suffering and social suffering. But actually what we should be trying to do is avoid spiritual suffering. If you take a look at the end of chapter 4, verse 6, it says that we ought to live in the Spirit the way God does. Through that great exchange is where we find life. And where we find life in the Spirit the way that Jesus Christ lived So that through his spirit, we don't end up denying Jesus like Peter did. We end up praying like Jesus did in his garden, where he says, not my will be done, but your will be done. So we should try to avoid spiritual suffering. This does not apply to physical suffering. Take a look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking meaning be ready to suffer in the flesh. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So whenever you've resigned your will to holiness and goodness, to the point that your body endures suffering, there's some special purification that's taking place where you're removed from sin because you've willingly given over your body for righteousness sake. We think about the the martyrs of the church, how many of them were willing to give their lives 
for holiness sake, for righteousness sake. They loved not their own body more than they loved Christ. Uh, some of them were not able to receive baptism in time. You know, they, they, they would go through this very long uh, procedure before baptism, sometimes taking up to three years. And in between there, some of those candidates for baptism would be martyred. So the church thought through how to think, well, what's going on? These people aren't baptized. What does that mean? So they thought of different categories of baptism. And one of those categories was the baptism of your blood, which they saw as a greater baptism than the baptism waters, that you have sealed your faith not with the waters uh, that we baptized you with, but the, water, the blood of your, your own life has sealed your fate. But this other group uh, called the Confessors was one that the church uh, almost idolized a little bit too much. So the, the martyrs died, they sealed their life, and you couldn't talk to them afterwards, right? Because they were, they were gone. But those that were confessors, those were the ones that endured all the same types of uh, 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 persecution, but didn't die. Uh, they, they lived to tell about it. So they would be able to tell their stories and experiences of, of what it was like to endure those sufferings. And, and people around the world today still go through that type of suffering. Uh, there was a, a Pakistani missionary I was familiar with who uh, they, they took a drill bit, you know, like the electric drill you drill uh, into to wood, and they used that to torture him, taking it into his arms and into his legs, trying to get him to recant his faith. And if you think about that, there's something that this person has achieved in holiness that you or I, frankly, have not because he has willingly given his body. Now, that doesn't mean you can't achieve that same type of holiness. We're not in the same context. But this passage gives us another type of persecution that we can suffer. And that is this social persecution. Uh, As we strive for holiness, people are going to think we're strange. It says that those around us, they're going to have, you know, uh, drinking parties and and orgies and uh, pursue lawlessness and idolatry. And as we abstain from that, people are going to think that we are strange. Uh, verse 4 says that they are going to malign you. Uh, that word malign is blaspheme. So the same type of thing. They're going to speak all sorts of evils. They're going to, to persecute you. Uh, we might experience that uh, today. The, the, the church in Thailand that we saw from Betsy, uh, a hill in the mission team, uh, one of the Uh, The the people there that was in that church uh, that I was at, uh, she was a young girl, probably 18 or 19, and had converted to to Christianity from Buddhism. And her her family disowned her after that. Her family sent kind of like bodyguards to keep her away from the church. So she would have to like sneak out to go to Bible studies uh, and and serve. But her her mother's, uh, literally her mother's dying words to her was blaming her for converting to Christianity, saying, "I'm, I'm dying because you converted to Christianity. So we can expect some type of social suffering. Uh, I don't even know if we'll experience that uh, in our lifetimes here, but there's this psychological aspect to it as well. Whenever you're shunned, uh, whenever you're alone because of your faith, uh, that is uh, a suffering. And as we go through that suffering of being isolated, of being thought strange, well, we find this purification. It cleanses us from sin. Uh, being alone is one of the the, the, the parts that why he brings up the ark of Noah, right? He says there's only eight people that were saved uh, through the ark. So, you know, that, that's one of the uncomfortable bits that we have to go through is by being few in numbers. But as we endure, we are growing and we're becoming more like Christ. So we press into our suffering, not our spiritual suffering. That's where we have new life. 
but we gladly endure physical, social, and potentially even psychological suffering as we pursue the life in the spirit. All right, and our last objection that we have to correct is that our job is to stop suffering. Uh, This is true, we are called to stop suffering, but we are called to stop suffering through good works. It is through our actions that we are able to alleviate people's suffering. Uh, Sometimes we think that we can just go out and help the poor and it doesn't matter what's going on inside of you. But actually this passage is telling us, uh, chapter 4, verses 7 to 11, this passage is telling us to prioritize things like purity and prioritize things like love. Uh, It says that we are called to be self-controlled, not uh, living any way that we would want or giving in to the the passions of our flesh. It even includes things like not eating too much, not drinking too much. We're supposed to live self-controlled. We're supposed to be sober-minded. We're not supposed to drink too much alcohol. We're not supposed to put things into our, our minds that change the way we think, which could be not too much news or too much fake news or too much social media. We're supposed to be focused so that we can have good works. And as we pursue good works and as we love other people, we're actually fighting sin. It talks about that as we love one another, that love is covering up other people's sins. It's covering up our own, but it's covering up other people so that they can move beyond sin and come that pure spiritual community. But just because we love and serve one another, it doesn't mean that it's easy. Take a look at verse 9. It says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So, you know, this idea of loving, being sober-minded and being hospitable, you know, caring for other people, it's not enough. We have to do it without grumbling. It's not so much that our actions have to be good. It's that our behavior has to be good, and it has to, to link with our conscience. We have to be good with our very intentions, So why do we serve? Why do we come to church? Why do we love other people? We have to do it from good intentions. So we have to to go to the very core of ourselves and examine and see, okay, what is really going on with behind my good works? Why am I doing these things or why am I not doing these things? And it's in those moments where we have to really press into Christ and live in the spirit and not to ourselves. And as we do that, as we live to the Spirit, as we fight sin, we're actually not just showing our own good works. We're actually showing Christ. Another thing that has been uh, huge on my mind and in my my meditations is the idea of how the church shows Christ on earth. But it's not just that we show Christ even. There's this this deeper level of, of intimacy that whenever we are doing something in the Spirit, it's as if Christ is there doing it himself. And this is applied in verse 11 to, to two primary things. One is that of speaking the oracles of God. So those who get up to preach and teach, it's not that we have some great insight and in that you know, we speak as if we are, we're, we're prophets. No, it's actually God giving us his spirit. And whenever we speak, it is the oracles of God because he's empowered us to do that. And it's it's not just pastors, it's Sunday school teachers, it's small group leaders. Uh, you know, we need more Sunday school teachers, we need more small group leaders. And this is one of the best, you know, reasons to do that. Because whenever you're doing it, God gives you the words to say. It's not like pastors have the monopoly, uh, 
you know, on, on God giving you revelation. It's, it's everybody, and, and we need people to come and speak to one another uh, because it's not just your words speaking when you speak the words of, of Christ. It's as if Christ is there speaking. It's speaking the oracles of God. But it's not just those that are speaking. It goes on to say that those who serve are the ones who serve by the strength God supplies. So it's not just speaking or just singing or leading in worship. It's also the small things that you do. Uh, sweeping the floor, stacking chairs, making coffee, uh, cleaning up after coffee fellowship. All of those are small things that point us to God or point other people to God. So as we do that, it doesn't even just apply to the church, but think about what it's like when you go out into society. Whenever you speak the oracles of God, whenever you live as if Christ is in you and you serve other people, well, that is the true way of stopping suffering through your good works. All right, we have one final correction. After we have gone through all of these with our red pen, we see that these are not objections for why we should avoid suffering. No, these are truths for why we should press into our suffering. Because yes, God wants us to be happy, but he wants us to have true happiness that only comes from holiness, from his holiness. And it's not so much that he just wants us to be saved from suffering. To get to true salvation, we have to go through suffering as well. Because Christ is our example. He suffered for the unrighteous, and now it is our turn to follow in his steps and suffer for the unrighteous as well. And it's not that we try to avoid all types of suffering. We embrace physical suffering. We embrace social suffering. But we avoid spiritual suffering by being united to the spirit that suffered for us. And it is not only our job to stop suffering by any means possible. We do that through our good works, which only he can supply to us. So yes, as exiles, we must press into our salvation, into our community, and of course we press into our example, into Jesus Christ. But we also press into our sufferings, because as we press into our sufferings, we're getting closer and closer to pressing in to our victory, which is the title of next week's sermon. Let us pray together. Father God, thank you for... Uh, sending your son in his ultimate uh, humility and his ultimate sacrifice that he became the Passover lamb. The, the Passover of, uh, of Jesus Christ is, is our suffering that we can embrace true righteousness through what he has given up for us. We pray, Lord God, that you would enable us to endure our suffering with joy and that you would supply us with true happiness, true blessedness so that we can show other people the love and power of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.